Dr. Joseph Wiener is an associate professor of clinical psychiatry, medicine, and science education at the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell, where he co-directs the four-year curriculum in physician-patient communication and interpersonal skills. Thinking and writing about how patients and clinicians communicate with each other has been a major interest in his career. He also happens to live in the town where I grew up. He teaches us today about something I've been wanting to learn about for a long time. The tagline of this show is everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. But this doesn't hold true in this episode because Dr. Wiener teaches motivational interviewing to medical students. It just wasn't being taught when I was there. So we go over basics of motivational interviewing, its origins, the spirit of motivational interviewing, how to go about it, and then we discuss how it can be used to have a productive conversation about the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine with those who may be hesitant. Now, I haven't had training in it, just listening to other podcasts and conversation with him, but I've used it already and it works. You can't use it to get someone to do something they don't want to do, but it helps them clarify their thoughts and hesitations. And using B.J. Fogg's language, you, you heard him on previous episodes, either get them closer to or over the action line. Dr. Wiener received his MD and his PhD in physiology and biophysics from NYU. He did residency training in psychiatry at NYU Bellevue and a fellowship in public psychiatry at Columbia College of Physicians and Surgeons. In addition, he pursued advanced psychotherapy training at the American Institute of Psychoanalysis. Dr. Wiener has received national and regional awards for his work as a clinician and educator. One he is particularly proud of was the 2015 Teacher of the Year Award from the Zucker School of Medicine at Hofstra Northwell for the first 100 weeks of medical school. Dr. Wiener's career interest in communication has expanded to the written medical narrative. He is currently writing a book about lessons learned from his late wife's battle with cancer and is currently an MFA student in creative writing and literature at Stony Brook, Southampton. Welcome to the Physician's Guide to Doctoring, a practical guide for practicing physicians. Dr. Bradley Block interviews experts in and out of medicine to find out everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle. The ideas expressed on this podcast are those of the interviewer and interviewee and do not represent those of their respective employers. Those on this podcast accept no liability for the outcomes of medical decisions based on this information. As the radiologists like to say, clinical correlation is required. This is not medical advice, and this does not constitute a physician-patient relationship. If you have a medical problem, seek medical attention. And now, here's Dr. Bradley Block. Before we get into the show, here's a quick message from MR Insurance, a small business that helps physicians with their disability insurance needs. Michael L. Relvis is a CFP professional and insurance agent committed to helping physicians nationwide with their term life and disability insurance needs. He provides an objective, transparent, and education-focused process that aims to help physicians make prudent decisions and avoid overcomplicating things. He exclusively offers own occupation disability insurance policies for residents, fellows, and attending physicians. We really like Michael and know he's got your best interest at heart when it comes to disability insurance. We know he'd be happy to help you with whatever your needs are. You can find Michael at drpodcastnetwork.com slash mrinsurance or contact him directly at 800-817-4522. That's 800-817-4522. Dr. Joe Weiner, thanks so much for being on the podcast. Oh, boy. Thanks, Brad. I'm looking forward to this. 
So you were recommended to me by my sister-in-law who who you work with. I said, who is the guru of motivational interviewing? And 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 they said you. And this is something that's going to be critical to us and really useful to us in talking to people about vaccines. But before we get into that, let's just talk about motivational interviewing. So what is motivational interviewing? Yeah, it's um, a way of connecting and communicating with someone about behavior change that helps them find the reasons to change. And it's particularly focused on language and how to recognize when a patient is invested in sustaining their behavior and when you hear that, how you can facilitate their movement towards language that indicates they're open to changing their behavior and how to recognize how close they are to making action, creating action. So a brief summary, it's a dialogue, a conversation about behavior change that's particularly focused on language. How did it start? Because we're going to be applying it to different places than its origins. But I think it's interesting to know how we, you know, where it all began. Yeah, it it's, has a super interesting beginning. Uh, Miller and Rolnick are the originators of motivational interviewing. It came out of their experience in substance use, treating people with substance use. And in the 1980s, the treatment of substance use was fairly authoritarian. Patients were assumed to be in denial of their problem, and they had to be forcefully motivated to recognize their denial and to change through the use of authority. And Dr. Miller recognized that wasn't particularly helpful. He was working on a unit that approached it a bit differently, and he had an opportunity to listen to his clients or patients and see that these people were bright and wished to have a healthier life. They were very different than the stereotype that was described of a substance user. And in those days, they were called substance abusers, right? And a similar experience that Dr. Rolnick had in a different setting alerted him to how this just was not working. They had a fortuitous meeting in the United States and they began to collaborate, developing a different kind of model that was based on clinical intuition rather than theory. What do you mean clinical intuition? Yeah, some interventions let's say the COVID vaccine are based on theory and hypotheses that are scientifically rooted, resulting from years of empirical data. What I mean by clinical intuition is they felt that the use of authority was not productive. Is there another way? And perhaps people um, could develop their own reasons for change rather than for the clinician to 
suggest and impress upon them the reasons to change. And if the clinician were to do that, what they found is patients rebel against that. So perhaps collaboration would be a better model, they thought. They began to explore that and uh, make observations and write a zillion papers. Thousands of papers have been written about motivational interviewing. And it's been applied in, um, let's say, since a zillion papers have been written, it's been applied in a zillion divided by 10 situations clinically. And so those are, those are the general origins uh, of this phenomenal uh, 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 way of engaging with patients. So you mentioned that previously that the issue of addiction was approached in an authoritarian way, yeah. right? Telling people what to do. Yeah. And uh, which leads to the concept of psychological reactance, yeah. right? which, you, which you mentioned without, without naming it. Yeah, so yeah, yeah. what is psychological reactance? It's kind of like this. Uh, Brad, you need a haircut. <laughs> so what was your reaction Clearly. to that? <laughs> Clearly. <laughs> but did you say to me it, within your own mind, you know, you're right, I, I really do need a haircut. I'm going to, as soon as we're done talking, I'm going to go get one. But no, because people don't like to give up their autonomy. It comes from evolutionary theory. So reactants, people are going to react to commands by resisting. People don't like to be the beta dog. And so if someone were to come up with their own reason to change, they will feel more in command of their life. If they agree, and you see this so often with teenagers, right? If you tell a teenager what to do, uh, get out of my life, but as the book says, can you drop me off at the mall first? <laughs> and so there aren't a lot of great ideas that teenagers have that aren't taken by parents first because they just simply haven't lived long enough. And so if a parent suggests the one or two good ideas that a teenager may have, the teenager uh, is very unwilling to give up their autonomy. And so they would rather rebel. I'm being uh, making this an overgeneralization, of course. They would rather rebel than, than do something really cool that would be beneficial. So it's um, an outgrowth of the understanding of the importance that people have in self-determination. There's another thing called self-determination theory that was not used to develop motivational interviewing, but has been... Um, seen to align with motivational interviewing. So in our dialogue before, we had talked about how the stages of change aren't part of motivational interviewing theory, but but don't they actually play a role in motivation? Don't you need to recognize what state someone's in before you would apply motivational interviewing? You, you actually don't, and uh, they make a point of uh, saying that. Perhaps we can talk about what stages of change are. Yeah, let's start with that, please. And stages of change uh, were, were written about by Prochesca and Di Clemente, and they described what they thought was an evolution of stages that people went through towards greater and greater readiness to change. 
And there, in my opinion, I use stages of change a lot in ways that we can discuss if we have time, particularly related to end-of-life decision-making. But it, it kind of goes like this, pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, readiness. Pre-contemplation, meaning the person is not even up to thinking about change pre-contemplation. Contemplation, they're thinking about it and they have ambivalence about it. Preparation, meaning they're moving along towards readiness. They're not quite there yet. And then readiness, they're ready to change. And then they added two other stages, maintenance, which before we went on the air, you were talking a little bit about habit and how difficult it is to maintain a habit. Uh, because motivation diminishes over time. So uh, maintenance is another stage uh, in stages of uh, change. And then relapse, and where does somebody relapse into pre-contemplation, contemplation, preparation, readiness? And then the the cycle uh, repeats and you try to stretch out the maintenance phase. And so I find that really helpful um, may I explain why? And we'll kind of tie it in with clinical work and then go back to motivational interviewing. Please, please. Um, I find it really helpful because clinicians, in a way that the substance abuse literature and, and clinicians did in the 1980s, overuse and, and harmfully use the word denial when they speak about patients. Like, this patient is in denial of their prognosis from stage four lung cancer. And denial, as contemporary clinicians use it, it's sort of like the following definition, denial. I am right and you are wrong, but you don't know that you're wrong. And if a patient feels that you think that about them, uh, of course, they're going to feel diminished, uh, disempowered, resentful, and mistrusting of your investment in them as an autonomous human being with the right to have self-determination. Uh, as opposed to denial, I am right and you are wrong and you don't know that you're wrong, pre-contemplation could be thought of as you and I have different points of view and you're not in conflict with your point of view. And then it's up to the clinician to understand what your point of view is, which may have a lot of merit. And the reason for, for, for that, and this is getting a little bit off the path, but we can return to it because it's an overlooked area of motivational interviewing, I believe. A reason that it's so important to think about different points of view is that medical decisions are not just medical decisions, they're social and emotional decisions. And so I may not want to stop smoking because that's where I hang out with my friends. Or I may not want to stop drinking because drinking is a social activity for me. And I don't want to stand out as being sober when all of my other friends drink heavily. Or the emotional aspect might be, I'm afraid I don't think I'm able to give up heroin and I don't want to uh, be, I don't want to experience my fragility that way. And so usually people understand that they should stop smoking, right? It's less of a medical decision. There are other factors that weigh into it. And one of them that, again, perhaps we ha will have time to talk about later on or not, 
but just to throw it in there and then we can get back to motivational interviewing, are the social determinants of health that make up 40 to 90% of medical outcome, depending on what you read. And the actual uh, doctor-patient interaction is, I don't know, t- uh, 20% of medical outcome. And I heard, I, I, I read it really well described recently in one of my favorite medical journals, Twitter, um, <laughs> where somebody said a great definition of privilege is having good decisions to make, good choices, having good choices. When there's the lack of privilege and the existence of profound social uh, detriments to health, let's say, where you may have choices, but a lot of them aren't good choices. And so when we go back to the whole idea of stages of change, I think it's really important and it's very basic to understand the difference between denial and pre-contemplation and to understand someone else's point of view. Well, correct me if I'm wrong, the way you're changing that, right, from denial to pre-contemplation is in the spirit of motivational interviewing, right? Because with that, the patient has autonomy, right? They keep their autonomy and your interview with them is or conversation, rather, is without judgment. And so what you're doing by putting aside the word denial is you're you're leaving judgment out of it. And yeah. So and, it, it seems to really mesh well yeah. with the spirit of motivational interviewing. It absolutely does. And we could talk about the spirit in a moment. You're absolutely right. It's not opposed to motivational interviewing at all what Miller and Rolnick and collaborators will say, it's not necessary to utilize stages of change to do motivational interviewing, but it absolutely is aligned with the spirit of motivational interviewing. I think where uh, the slight differences is that Miller and Rolnick and colleagues have articulated recognizing language that is sort of preparatory to change, or activating to change. And preparation is sort of like contemplation and activation is sort of like some mixture of preparation and readiness. So it's kind of all there. They use different language and in ways that don't require the use of stages of change. So let's talk about motivational interviewing. How do I start implementing this in my practice? So you know, as the audience knows, I'm an otolaryngologist. Most most of what I do is is outpatient, and so I lot I see a lot of people that have habits that may influence their outcomes. Right? Uh, someone has nasal polyposis and they smoke, yeah. or someone has obstructive sleep apnea and they have an elevated BMI. And yeah. so, you know, some of the things that they they the habits that they have, I want to motivate them. <laughs> to change those things. Yeah. So can I start? What? Where do I start? Where do I yeah. begin? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, it's a great question. Uh, perhaps we can start with recognizing what doesn't work. Okay. And, and to hear oneself do, uh, uh, encourage someone to change and to hear what happens when a patient pushes back. And this is called the riding reflex, R-I-G-H-T-I-N-G. As doctors, that's how we're trained. We're trained to make bad things good. 
we're changed to prescribe, we're changed to do surgery, we're trained to prescribe, we're trained to do surgery, we're trained to intervene, we're trained to make decisions, we're trained to make diagnoses. So we're trained to do. And doing in the context of self-determination theory or psychological reactance leads to pushback. Can we do an exercise? I didn't prepare you for this. So for all the audience now, this is extemporaneous. It's very exciting, right? Like what's <laughs> going to happen next? So uh, let's do the following, if we might. Can you, Brad, think of something, a change you want to make that you need to do, you've been thinking about, but you haven't done it yet? And then I'm going to demonstrate me trying to push you to change. Would that be okay? Sure. All right. So uh, just to set this up. So Brad, what is it that you're thinking about changing? Um, taking social media off my phone. Okay. So I'm going to try to make that thing in your life go away now. So... Well, you know, I have read so much about the downsides of overusing social media, like it interferes with sleep, it reduces productivity, it can have a whole addictive feel to it, it removes you from conversing with other people at the dinner table. You know, I... I, I in my opinion, people overuse social media on their phones, don't they, Brad? Yeah, a lot of a lot of people do. I don't think I I don't think I overuse it. You know, uh -huh. I I I don't use it as much as a lot of people, but hmm. I, I still want to use it less. Uh, but I wouldn't say I use it a lot. Yeah. Well, now you want to remove it from your phone, though, and and so you're saying that. And how, how could you do it if you wanted to, if you went, you know, because we know that people overuse it. Yeah. You, know, you, you told me you wanted to remove it. So how would you do it? I would just open my phone and delete the apps. And that would, in my opinion, I think that would improve your life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what do you think? I think I should, but I, I don't know if they're going to stay off that phone. Oh, okay. Well, uh, that, that I think that's a kind of a, a matter of willpower, right? Yeah, I've tried it before, and uh, clearly, I don't have the willpower. Yeah. Well, maybe if you keep in mind all the downsides to it, like it may interfere with your sleep, you know, the light from the phone, and it reduces melatonin secretion, and you're not going to be able to fall asleep. And then a lot of people they overeat when they can't sleep, and they gain some weight, and you know, uh, you know, so maybe if you keep that in mind, that, that'll help you. What do you think? Uh, I mean, for me, the main motivator is that I check my phone when I'm hanging out with my kids. Oh, I see. Okay. See what I mean? Yeah. It, it, and, it, it, and it keeps me from, yeah, and it keeps me from falling asleep. I don't wake up in the middle of the night and I check it, but I, you know, it, I, it, it does sit on the nightstand. And when my, my wife and I were in bed early, ready to go to sleep, knowing that the kids are going to wake us up in the middle of the night, we scroll for, you know, Longer, much longer than we should. So it'd be yeah. much easier if it wasn't on the phone. But yet I know if I delete it, it's going to end up back there. So why even bother deleting it? Okay. So that is taking a persuasive approach. On a scale of zero to 10, how much did that change your needle to go ahead and take these apps off, of, uh, off your phone? Like a two? A two three? out of 10. 
two to three, meaning 10 is like you're really motivated. I'm to ready to do it. I'm doing it again. Do it. Yeah. Yeah. And how much was it before we had that discussion out of 10? Probably the same. Maybe it moved it like one point, yeah. right? Yeah. Maybe it went from a two to a three. I'm glad to hear I didn't I, I didn't dissuade you. No. I'm glad to hear it didn't go down. But but it clearly wasn't that effective. Let's compare and contrast just to give a feel. Would that be okay? Yeah. So what kind of change are you thinking about, Brad? I'm thinking about deleting social media from my phone. Oh, okay. Well, that's interesting. Um, um, tell me about that. Well, it's keeping me from paying attention to my kids. I find myself, because my phone's in my pocket, I, I still want to keep my phone on me because I want to take pictures of them. But when my phone's on me, I inevitably take it out from time to time and open the apps instead of paying attention to them. Yeah. My focus should be on them. Your kids are so important to you. Yes. And you really want to, as a dad, be very attentive. Yeah. And you're finding that having social media on your phone takes your attention away from your kids. Yes. Okay. And and so that's one reason that you're thinking about removing social media from your phone. What what other reasons are there, if any? Um, getting to bed on time. You know, and, my wife and, and I, we, we scroll a lot right before bed. And if it wasn't on there, then I might read a book or go to bed. Mm. Seems a lot more productive than scrolling. So scrolling keeps you up and it prevents you from reading a book that you might otherwise read. And what happens as a result of staying up and scrolling? More tired the next day, more distracted okay. the next day, need more caffeine the next day. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, tired, distracted, caffeine. And so other reasons that you might want to take social media off your phone? No, that's pretty much it. Those are the two reasons. Those are the two big reasons. So one reason is that it you really want to focus on your kids and a big value you have in life is being the best dad you can be. And you find that social media takes away that focus that you would like to have more fully on your kids. And then at night, when you and your wife scroll, it keeps you up, prevents you from reading a book you might want to read. And the next day you're tired, you lack focus, and you're ingesting more caffeine than you would like. Does that sound reasonable? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. Well, uh, on a scale of zero to 10, how important, given, given that, how important would it be for you to take social media off your phone? Um, you know, I'm a bit more motivated now. It's a five or a six. A five or a six, which is certainly a lot higher than a one or a two or a three. Yes. What makes it a five or a six as opposed to a two? Um, just the reasons that we talked about. It makes it a five because it is just so important to me. I mean, ultimately, it just comes, you know, getting more sleep is important so that I'm on my game when I'm in with my patients and not having it distract me from my kids. You know, I want to be on my game and and at my best when I'm with my patients and when I'm with my kids. Yeah. And so this is, it's, it's, 
I guess it should be higher than a five or a six because it's so important to me that those things are the case. Whereas how important is Twitter? I mean, I think I'm asking the wrong person here how important is Twitter <laughs> to the guy with a lot of Twitter followers. But uh, uh, yes, uh, you know, it's 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 not that important to me. I could always open up my laptop once a day and uh, and get my social media time in in a more controlled way rather than it controlling me. So you're also talking about a value you have to be the best physician you can be and that you find when you're tired and you lack a, a, a optimal concentration, you have to push yourself even harder uh, to be the kind of physician you are and who, who, who you want to be. Yes. Yeah. And so we're seeing that uh, having social media on your phone affects your ability to be a dad. It affects your sleep. It affects your ability to enrich yourself through reading. And then the next day you're tired, you have difficulty concentrating, you're ingesting more caffeine and you may feel you have to push yourself harder to be the effective doctor that you value in your life. Yes. And, and so you, you said that you were kind of reevaluating. Maybe you should think about it as a higher priority than you did before. So how would you rate it from zero to 10? I'm not sure whether you're asking actual Brad or actor Brad in this scenario. Well, whoever you want to be. I don't know. <laughs> I didn't know if you were actual or actor before. So yeah, yeah. Whoever no, you know, all these things are real. Was. This is a this is a real uh this is a real example. Um yeah, I mean, each time we go through it, I'm a little more motivated than I was before. I mean, it's hard for me to, to pick a number, but I guess, you know, still a six or seven. I'm not like a, a 10 out of 10, but I'm definitely, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know, I could feel I could feel the difference to when uh, beforehand when you were basically inventing reasons from me that you might have as yeah. opposed to asking me what my reasons were and just and clarifying them for me and and really putting them in in terms of more gravity, you know, like when you said about my kids, like, the, you know, they are so important to you and they're your focus. And yet you've got this social media that's getting in your way. You know, that's, it, it, it's got more gravitas when you said it that way than when I kind of more flippantly said it. Yeah. Well, you were telling me what was important to you and I merely reflected it back. Yeah. through through uh, careful listening. And if we could demonstrate for um, your listeners one other thing, and then we'll double back and, and process what you experienced as the recipient of uh, this motivational conversation. So Brad, given all of that, the impact on your parenting, the impact on your doctoring, the impact on your sleep, what are your thoughts moving forward? Well, since you've reflected it back to me, it really makes me feel guilty about not actually moving forward and, and deleting this stuff off my phone. So it sounds like you're. it's something you're very seriously thinking about. Yeah. It would be almost preposterous for me to, after having this conversation, to not actually delete this stuff off my phone. And it makes me a little sorry that I started this interview because oh. now I'm going to have to delete all this social media <laughs> off my phone. Well, the thing about it is you you are really the decision maker. Yeah. The, you have total control of this decision. 
And I was just merely reflecting to you what you were telling me. So you're, you, so that's very important to keep in mind. And do you think, so based on this, do you think it's something you're ready to act on? I think it's something I'm almost ready to act on. Yeah. I'm okay. not sure I'm totally ready to act on it, but it certainly moved up in the, quite a, a bit higher in the scale of yeah. readiness. And that's an example of that process of, of mo- a motivational discussion that before it sounds like you were thinking about it, one might say contemplation, or one might say preparative language, you were thinking about it. And now there was a little bit more activating language that you were using. You were, you were a bit closer, not quite ready to, uh, to make a plan yet. And that's very realistic. And so I wonder if you were to compare and contrast the persuasive methodology where I'm banging you over the head and the motivational conversation, what was it like for you to be the recipient? Oh, clearly the motivational was much more effective, right? Because I wasn't I wasn't being told what to do with someone else's reasons why I should do it. Yeah, they were your reasons, right? Yeah. This is so much at the heart of motivational interviewing. It's to help the person evoke their own motivation. Yeah, it's not about you know, you should lose weight because it increases your life expectancy. What are your reasons for wanting to do it? Exactly. And so, and and that's why I emphasize that it's really your decision. So it's not a matter of feeling guilty because I'm kind of pushing, it's really your decision. And in that way, you're the alpha dog. Yeah. Cool. So that's, so to get back to your question, well, how does one start this? Perhaps we can talk about the spirit of motivational interviewing a little bit and tie that into that example of a discussion. Would that be? Yes. I, I would also say, At the end of this podcast, it's really tough to go from zero to 60 to do motivational interviewing, to set expectations. Maybe you can learn, you know, a little bit of a change in framework, or you'll hear one or two questions you may ask, or or listen maybe a little more carefully to a patient of yours. And so I could recommend some ways to continue to, to read about motivational interviewing, maybe even study it before we end today to give people a direction. Yeah, because it seems like when you did it with me, you did it in, you know, there was was a method there that needs to be learned in practice. It's not, you know, we can start having less judgmental conversations with our patients and trying to elicit their reasons, but to really weave it together the way you did, I I feel like requires more practice and like any kind of skill, right? Yeah. It, it's uh, neither more nor less uh, important practice in motivational interview. And I'm practicing it all the time and I, I can get better at it and hope to, when I'm 80 years old, you know, be like Yoda with the big ears and <laughs> two feet tall with the waistband up to my the middle of my chest. And, <laughs> you know, so I'll look forward to those days. So the motivational interviewing people talk about four aspects of the spirit of MI, motivational interviewing. And it really starts from the spirit. And it took me a long time to get this. I spirit, schmerit, yeah, I get to do this, you think this way. But it's really a philosophical approach to engaging with a patient. And they talk about four things. One thing is acceptance, to accept the patient for who they are, 
and understand they have the right to decide how to live their lives. That's very hard to do because we're trained to diagnose and treat. And if a patient wants to keep smoking and they have nasal polyposis, we're kind of feeling, no, <laughs> you know, then I'm not able to do what I was trained to do, which is to help you with your polyposis. And so that's a yucky feeling for a doctor to have based on the culture of how we were trained. And so to be able to engage in motivational interviewing and to be able to, even if you're not doing formal motivational interviewing, for patients to feel this doctor really gets that the change is going to come from me and not them, it's to accept that the patient is the decision maker. And we all, you know, choose to lead our lives the way we do with pros and cons attached to them. Some people make really yucky decisions. And as long as they don't endanger themselves, uh, like suicidal or other people, homicidal, you know, people, as long as they have the capacity to make those decisions in the ways that doctors think about assessing capacity, you know, we have the right to do that, right? So acceptance. I like the way that you, the word that you use there, acceptance, because ultimately they're the decision, they are, we just need to accept it, right? It's not, we have Mm. to relinquish the decision-making to them. The decision-making has always been there because they're with us for 15, 20 minutes, and then they're not, and they're making their own decisions. So I I like that word, accepting that they're making their own decision. Yeah, and it's not my word. It's, you know, we'll thank uh, Drs. Miller and Rolnick for that word. And I like how you phrased it in the thinking about where what what it is that we are accepting. And if you if a doctor thinks, well, this patient is their decision maker, doesn't it take some pressure off of us? Yeah, absolutely. Right? Like at the end of this discussion, I must have this patient agree with me. And uh, you bang your head against the wall, the patient bangs their head against the wall, patient leaves, you leave, you both take Tylenol and have to go <laughs> on with your day. It's very, it's very unpleasant, uncomfortable. And the, the main thing is it's not effective. It's not particularly effective. So the first part of the spirit is to accept the patient's the decision maker. And the second part of the spirit is to have compassion for them. We're all doing the best we can in life. And we think about those social determinants of health and who are our parents, what are our genetics, what's the environment we grow in. And, 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 you know, we all want to have a nice life and we're doing the best we can. And so here's this person coming to me, making decisions the best they can and to have compassion for that. And there's a skill set in expressing compassion that we can talk about in a moment called reflection how one reflects uh, experiences back to a patient to demonstrate acceptance and compassion. So two of the four components of the spirit of MI, acceptance and compassion. A third thing is evocation. What does that mean? And I scratched my head over that word for a while. Evocation is what I asked of you. Well, what would you like to change? I'm evoking that from you. So Brad, you want to take a social media apps off your phone. Uh, tell me about that. I'm evoking that from you. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it, it scrolls, it, you scroll at night. Uh, how does that affect you? I'm evoking that from you. Like I evoked, I didn't come up with any of that. You, I kept evoking. 
And, uh, and so that's the third of four elements of the spirit of, of MI. And then there's collaboration. Collaboration we didn't quite demonstrate, but it might go something like this. Well, uh, so you're not quite ready to take the apps off your phone yet. Uh, could I check in with you the next time we get together? Would that be okay? And so it's asking permission. That's one form of collaboration. Another form of collaboration is, so uh, Brad, you're not quite sure what uh, would sustain your motivation to keep these apps off your phone. May I suggest a couple of things? And that's another form of collaboration. Uh, so when we think about collaboration, uh, uh, there are many different ways to collaborate with a patient. And what underlies them tends to be, not always, but tends to be this concept of shared decision-making rather than a paternalistic or parental approach to decision-making. So acceptance, compassion, evocation, and collaboration are four elements of the spirit of MI, motivational interviewing. And so uh, where to start is really thinking about, well, how are we with our patients? What are our inclinations? What are our clinical reflexes? And what do we want to take, what do we want to take into account as, as we would like to change the spirit in which we engage with patients? If we wish, and like our patients, we're the decision makers of how we want to practice as the doctor. So then how do we get into the the technique? So you'd mentioned reflection. And I mm -hmm. think in in motivational interviewing, the people that practice it tend to love acronyms, right? Ors, pace. Uh -huh. I'm sure there's a number of other ones that I'm not familiar with. You are less interested in the acronyms, but I think I still think there's you know there's something to be learned there. So yeah. with regards to the technique, yeah, like yeah, the yeah. reflection was yeah, yeah, was yeah. a critical component. You yeah. know, repeating back to me, clarifying for me what my own reasons were. Yeah, yeah. How do I you know now? Once we're into the spirit of acceptance, compassion, evocation, and collaboration, you know, bring us into the technique. I'm yeah, a surgeon. Yeah, yeah. Like, how do I do? How, how do you do, do it? How do you do it? How do you get yeah. it? Yeah, absolutely. Got it. Well, there are four things that someone acquainted with motivational conversation. And I, 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 even though it's called motivational interviewing, I don't particularly like the word interviewing myself. I like motivational dialogue, motivational conversation. It's a historic term. It's not going to change anytime in the near future. But interviewing is sort of implies a unidirectional thing. So uh, I, I'll ask permission to use some term like motivational dialogue. There are four tools that uh, people that are engaging in motivational dialogue use over and over and over again. And if you read a transcript, you just see this over and over again. It's called ORS, O-A-R-S. O is open-ended questions. So when you said you wanted to take apps off your phone, uh, social media apps, I said, tell me about it. Uh, when you said, uh, I don't like scrolling at night, you know, I'm paraphrasing. I said, in what way? So open-ended questions. And then affirmations, uh, it's sort of like, and, and I actually didn't make a lot of uh, affirmation statements. It would be sort of, sort of like, oh, I think, it's, uh, I think it's really great that you hear today exploring what's important to you for the quality of your life. That's an affirmation statement. 
pointing out something you admire or like about your patient. And so that's A, affirmation. R is a re- reflective statement. And that, that takes sort of um, a lot of practice to, re- I still practice that every day. And reflection, imagine that you're a mirror and you're just giving back what the patient gives you. You're just reflecting that back. And there are simple reflections, like it it would kind of go like this. Uh, You're telling me that, uh, well, actually let's practice it so people uh, hear. So uh, what is it like for you to scroll at night, uh, you and your wife in bed and you're scrolling scrolling at night? So we're just sitting there, not interacting with each other, uh, not really interacting with anyone else in any meaningful way, except for the rare times we actually post something. Um, and then we look at the clock and a half an hour has gone by or 45 minutes has gone by. So it's just mind numbing and wasteful. Mind numbing and wasteful. Wow. That's powerful. That was a reflective statement. Mind numbing and wasteful. Wow. That was powerful. And if you hadn't said my numbing and wasteful, I was thinking, what words could I use to describe Brad's experience? And I uh, was trying to come, you came up with better words than I was uh, thinking about. Uh, I was uh, thinking about, wow, that sounds frustrating. So I might've said, wow, that sounds frustrating. And uh, go ahead, Brad. Well, if you had called it mind numbing and wasteful, I think it would have been more judgmental, right? I would, I think you would have probably gotten some of that psychological reactance out of it. And I would have said, you know, it would have, it would have made me, you know, back into my corner a little bit. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah, 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 yeah. Right. Whereas like, you know, that I think it'd be hard for me to come up with a term in your situation for it for something that wouldn't make me, you know, back into my corner. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, and I think that's fair to say because your um, your level of upset probably didn't reach my, to give me permission to say mind-numbing and wasteful. Yeah. It did give me permission to say, wow, that sounds frustrating. Yeah. And so the clinician will think, what word that uh, can I use to reflect what I'm seeing that will be acceptable for a patient to hear? And so that's the A part. That's called a simple reflection where you're kind of saying, that's mind-numbing and wasteful, and I'm kind of repeating it back. Where somebody is, is really sad and they're crying, and you say, you know, I see how, uh, how sad this situation is for you. So it's a simple reflection. You're really repeating what's obvious. A complex reflection is you're guessing something um, deeper which is when I said to you, um, you really value being a good dad. That was a complex reflection because that was implied with the statement, it takes me away from being with my kids. And those are more challenging kinds of reflections to learn how to do. So for people that are starting out in motivational interviewing, uh, there I go, motivational conversation, motivational dialogue um, uh, approaches, Uh, to try reflective practices and uh, that are simple, giving the patient what they're giving you on on a straightforward way. And if I were to have said to you, Brad, because some people will say, that's BS. 
why should I have to tell somebody what they're already basically demonstrating to me? And it does get to compassion and acceptance because if you say, if I said to you, Brad, wow, that, that sounds frustrating. How would you have felt about me saying that to you? Fine. Like, uh, I mean, I, I just, that you, that you're, I mean, like not offended meaning, but I, I would have felt that you understand me, that you're, right. you're getting what I'm saying. Exactly. That I'm accepting you for who you are. And I'm saying in a way that's compassionate, not yeah. judgmental. Right. And so that, that's so important, uh, reflective statements and affirmation statements, because the very beginning to go back, how does one get into motivational interviewing? You're first establishing the connection with the patient. You're first establishing the relationship and you're doing it very consciously. Uh, it's not just a matter of being kind. It's a matter of seeking out how a patient will get that you accept them and you're compassionate for their struggle. So that's the A and the R. We talked about the O. Before we go on to the S, which is summary, summarizing, any other thoughts before we go on to that S? No, please. Okay, cool. And so S is summarizing. And you saw me summarize when I said, so by engaging in social media apps on your phone, what I'm hearing happens is you are not focused on your kids. You don't go to sleep as well as you'd like. You don't read books as much as you want. You wake up tired the next day. You are having a hard time concentrating and you ingest more caffeine. And that kind of goes against your value of being a, the best dad you can be and the best doctor you can be. That's a summary statement. And when somebody makes a summary statement like that, it does several things. Uh, Summarizing does uh, four things at least. One thing is you put together in your own mind what somebody's going through, and that could really help you accept them and be compassionate for them. And we could use summary statements as clinicians when you're gathering a patient narrative as you're taking a history, and that helps you also think, well, what's the differential diagnosis and where do I wanna go with this discussion? So summary statements are really important. So that's one thing it does. The second thing it does is you could correct me if I heard you wrong. Like, no, 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 I didn't quite say that. I really said this. And then a third thing it does is it helps the patient hear their own story. Like maybe they need to revise their own story. A fourth thing it does is you're presenting, as Miller and Rolick will say, a bouquet of flowers to them. This is what the situation is. I'm presenting this to you. This is my gift to you, this summary statement. So you could really take in what, what's going on now. And actually a fifth thing is it could also buy you some time to think about, well, what would I wanna ask next or where do I wanna go with this whole thing? So we'll say five summary statements do five things. So open-ended questions. There is a point for closed-ended questions, of course, but in the evocation, what is somebody's motivation? What are their reasons? How would they go about doing it? Open-ended questions are really helpful. O, open-ended questions. A, affirmations. I'm really glad you're here to see me today, um, Brad. Reflective statements. Go for simple reflections when you start out. And then summary statements. They do that over and over and over again. So that that's 
entering in, and then we could we could give a taste of MI in a moment, like the script, the structure in a moment. Uh, but let me pause there. So, you know, we're we're trying to we'll eventually tie this into vaccine hesitancy. Yeah. Right. So the one thing that I'd like to so I mean I, mean, I want to take this interview in so many different directions. <clears throat> what can we use it for? What can't we use it for? But if we're going to be going through examples, you know, because ultimately the 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 theme of a bunch of these episodes that I've been doing have all been around addressing vaccine hesitancy. So for for our next example, is it okay if we use it in a situation where a patient is hesitant about the vaccine? You bet. Uh, I mean, specifically the SARS-CoV-2 vaccine. Yeah. Um, although motivational debriefing has preceded the existence of SARS-CoV-2. Yeah. Uh, and has been used in uh, in parents, uh, in the parents of newborns, and it's shown to be very effective. And so mm-hmm. now we want to pivot and use it in adults who are vaccine hesitant in, in, in the same way. Um, mm-hmm. So... Uh, how do we start even start that conversation, right? Because uh, a lot of us, and, and I encourage all of our listeners to do that, we should be asking all of our patients about it, right? Yeah. Like you're in for an ear infection. I'm still going to ask you if you plan to get the vaccine. You're in for you know a sinus infection. You've got a, I mean, maybe not a neck mask because then we're worried about cancer. Uh, stay on topic. But for something where it's really not not a potentially grave illness, I'm going to be bringing it up. And yeah. so I think all of us should be doing it. How? How do we do it? Yeah, there are two ways to do it. Either a patient will raise it to you. You know, what are your thoughts about these COVID vaccines? Or a patient raised it to me uh, over the weekend. You know, I have mixed feelings about getting this COVID vaccine. Or you could raise it to the patient, you know, given that there is the availability for COVID vaccines, I am checking in with all my patients to see what their thoughts are about that. And all of those are very uh, natural ways to to pivot into the discussion. But open-ended, what are your thoughts? Not, do you plan to get it? What are your thoughts? What are your thoughts about it? Right. And that's an example of ORS, right? An open-ended question. Because depending on their thoughts, they're going to guide where this discussion will go. If you say, are you planning to get it? And they say no. Well, what are you going to say about that? Yeah. Well, like you could tell me, you could say, well, how come? Already it's a little bit of a adversarial engagement. If you start with, well, what are your thoughts about that? you the patient can say you know i i think it's i don't want to be a guinea pig and you could say well i'd like to hear a, a more about that um so if one is that know, i mean that that sounds so i mean i'd like to hear i would have trouble making that roll off my tongue i'd uh-huh. like to hear more about that it you know to me it sounds a little scripted you uh-huh know? How would you say it then? What would I work? For I you? don't. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. Well, I don't have a better answer. You know, like um. So, well, let's. Yeah, go ahead, Brett. So, what are your thoughts on the vaccine or on yeah. the vaccines? Yeah. And then, and then they say, "Well, I think it came out too quickly." Uh huh. And and I might say, "Well, some people feel that way. Uh, what what leads you to that belief?" And they may tell me, and then I might say. 
Well, what, what have some patients said to you, Brad? So do you want to dialogue this a yeah, little bit? Yeah, yeah, please. that would be good, right? Yeah. All right. So, so I'm not so too sure. I, I, sorry, go ahead. Yeah, well, I, I, you know, since COVID vaccines are out now, I check in with all my patients and uh, just to see what their thoughts are. So I, I wonder what your thoughts are about uh, getting a vaccine. I'm not so sure. I, I, I just think it came out too quickly. Uh huh. And so uh, what I'm hearing is that you want to make sure that any vaccine you get is safe. Yeah, it just seems like every other vaccine took a long time to develop, and this one just came out so quickly. There, there has to be some reason why this one came out faster than the rest of them, and I, you know, I don't think I trust it. Yeah, you're concerned that it was rushed. Yeah. Yeah. And um, have you read anything about what led to the ability to make this vaccine so quickly? No, no. Is, I is just that, I just saw, you know, I just I just can't believe that it it, it just makes me suspicious that it came out so fast. It, it has been developed so quickly. You're absolutely right. A lot faster than the majority, the vast majority of other vaccines have been produced. And that is hard to take in. Yeah. May I share with you the reasons why we have been able to make this vaccine so quickly? Please. And I would go ahead and I would explain that in a way that's syntonic with health literacy and cultural beliefs and language and all of those other things that are important in uh, medical education, uh, educating our patients. So I did a few things there. Could we go over that and, and see what how I began that discussion? Please. It just, to me, having gone from taking apps off my phone to uh, of potentially life-saving vaccine or a life-saving vaccine, the conversation regarding the apps on my phone just seems so much, was so much longer than our very brief conversation about the vaccine. You know, like it seems like we just went and our conversation was similar to other conversations I've had with my patients. I don't know. It just, I, I find it so unlikely that I got it right. Oh, well, you, know? well, you may have. Who knows? Uh, because you're super smart. And I will tell everybody Brad is super smart. <laughs> because Brad sent me the questions he was going to ask me today. And he did an amazing job putting together really sophisticated questions. So you may have gotten it right. And uh, uh, based on our discussion, you are uh, very thoughtful and empathetic. So I think that's important to say because... One doesn't, there's a lot of stuff. If you have the spirit, you kind of can get a lot of motivational interviewing. What I would say is, well, our discussion about vaccination uh, didn't end with me educating you because you still may have a lot of hesitancy. Yeah. So I might explain to you, well, you know, this is how they made it so quickly. We talk about how it's easy to make or easier to make RNA vaccines and that this was built on 10 years of research. And, you know, we were all waiting for ready, set, go. And, you know, uh, it was in production and, the, and they were while they were testing the vaccine, they were producing vaccines and the government made an investment in buying vaccine. You know, we go, we go yeah. through all of those things. And then at the end, I might say to you and, and be one of your patients again. So 
So what are your thoughts about how we were able to make the, this vaccine so quickly? Well, and this is this is where I get stuck. Uh, I still don't know. Uh-huh. You know, like, ah, like I, I feel like I'm right there with them. And then uh, I don't know. I still don't know. Well, tell me what your hesitancy is. Tell me more. I just still feel I still feel like I can't trust it. I just want to wait. Yeah. I just want to wait. Okay, you want to wait. And what would you want to wait to see? I just want other people to get it first. You know, I, I don't I don't want to be the guinea pig. Yeah. And so you you don't want something bad to happen to you. You value your health. Yes. And so on one hand, I know you don't want to get COVID. Actually, I would say it the other way. I apologize. On one hand, you don't want to have a bad side effect from this vaccine. On the other hand, you don't want to get COVID. Right. So you have a bit of a dilemma, it sounds like. Yeah, I don't know what this vaccine would do to my body two or five years from now. You know, they don't know, and they're not going to know until five years from now. Uh, you know, I don't I don't want to end up on some... Uh, you know, like that that commercial I see about mesothelioma. You know, those people got exposed to it. Now they're part of a class action lawsuit. Yes. And so for some kinds of medicines, stuff comes out after two or three or five years, right? Yeah. Yeah. And so now what did I just do? I emphasize what's called sustained talk. You want to do that as little as possible, but we have not established enough of a connection yet for me to continue to pursue change talk, in my opinion. There might be, uh, Dr. Rolnick may say, you know, I, uh, Joe, you just blew it there. You shouldn't have gone in that direction. But I, I, I'm making a clinical decision to really legitimize your concerns because they're legitimate concerns. You know, what's going to happen five years from now? You're going to get coochie-coochie disease from, <laughs> you know, getting this vaccine. Um, so I would say, yeah, well, a lot of people are concerned about it. And would it be okay if we talk about the pros and cons of the dilemma that you're in? Yeah, please. And so that dilemma that I emphasize, that's another kind of reflective statement. On mm -hmm. one hand, and I say the sustained talk, you don't want to have a side effect from this vaccine. On the other hand, you don't want to get COVID. Yeah. And so I'm going to start with the reasons why you don't want to get the vaccine. And then I'm going to end with the reasons why you may want to get the vaccine. Because if you end on the positive, it's more likely that somebody will take that in um, as they think things through, the positive aspects of it. Now, you asked also asked my permission to continue talking about it. I could see a scenario where the patient says, you know what, I, no, I just don't want to, I'm just not going to get it, you know, like, yeah. the, and they just shut it down. Yeah, and so that goes to the uh, acceptance part of the spirit of MI, and you have to decide how you're going to approach that. You may approach it simply by saying, this sounds like not the right time for you to discuss this. And you might say, yeah, really, I just don't want to get into it. I'm not in the mood. I, everybody's bugging me to get this vac vaccine. And you might say, well, I, you know, I respect that. You, you, you'll be the decision maker. Or you might say, yeah, I respect that. You'll be the decision maker. We don't have to talk about it. Uh, if you wish, we could talk about what everybody's telling you that's, that's bugging you. 
we could decide to take it one step further and assess, am I going to piss this person off more than it's worth? Or do we want to hang it? And it's tough because you get COVID. Not only do you have a small percent chance of dying, but then there are also the morbidities that can be chronic and really mess up somebody's life. And so you have to decide as the clinician how far you're going to push this. And where this leads in motivational interviewing is as clinicians, the majority of us, not all of us, believe it's good to get the vaccine. There are some doctors that believe I'm going to wait, right? Yes, yes. Exactly. So it's not like smoking and lung cancer. There are some of our colleagues that are saying, I'm going to wait. And so it's really, you may feel that it's good to get the vaccine, but the acceptance of where the patient is at, and that leads to the question, you know, I'm very, I, I'm very interested. I'd like to hear what your reluctance is. And that gets to, if you want to use stages of change, pre-contemplation, you and I have a different point of view. What's your point of view? I really want to know that. And so that that's also an example of engaging or connecting with the patient. So let's say, as you're saying, uh, no, I've had enough. I don't want to talk about it. You make that decision. But let's say I say to you, I'd like to hear more about your distrust, you know, given the science of what we discussed. And you're concerned that in two or three or five years, you may have a, a bad effect. What have you heard about? What have you read? What are your thoughts? What might happen down the road? I don't know the answer because I haven't I haven't taken any anyone down this uh, down this road uh, down this road. So I'm not sure what the the answer might be. I don't know whether they're going to get. I, I think the answer is just is going to be around the unknown, right? Yeah. I just don't know what it could do. I yeah. don't know what it could do, and I don't know how anyone could know because it hasn't been around for that long. Yeah, and so then what I would do is the following. Okay. What the scientists say is when this little thing, this message that we inject into your arm, it gets taken up by the cells, it tells your cells, make this little part of the virus, not the whole virus, this little part, so the body now is on guard. And if the virus gets into your system, damn, we're going to attack it. But after that little message gets into your cell, the cell breaks it down. It's not there anymore. It's gone. And, and there's nothing, it has nothing to do with the body anymore. Now, I, I think in my in the back of my mind, could somebody have an autoimmune reaction five yeah. years from now, 10 years? I don't know. I'm not an immunologist. The immunologists that are listening are going to call up and say, what did you have the psychiatrist on for? <laughs> because he doesn't know any immunology. And so I really don't know the answer. I wouldn't know how to respond to that. I would just simply say it's broken down by the body. And what scientists think is that there are clearly, we do know the short-term effects. What will happen five years from now, we do know the effects of having COVID. And we do know the short-term effects of the virus. Could we talk about that, what we do know? And so I would shift it from what we don't know and say, this is what we think now. We could only tell you what we think and then what we do know. Yeah. And, and then I would say to the patient, would you like to hear what we do know about the short-term effects? No. And I would take them through that and I would be happy to say of the 
millions of people and correct me if I'm wrong, Brad, and all the immunologists will call in, never have a psychiatrist signing, uh, that uh, of the millions of people who have been vaccinated, not one person has died from COVID. From, that's my understanding. Yeah, that's and my understanding as well. Yeah, of the millions who have been vaccinated, isn't that unbelievable? And I would say you're worried about an unknown five years, you know, potential side effect that's taking a risk. Yeah. And then we think about the risk of not getting infected. We've had 460,000 or more people in the United States that have died. And then I go through the long-term implications without lecturing. I would keep asking, may share with you this, may I share with you Mm. that? And then I would say, well, and, and may I share with you what the side effects that we do know are? Yeah. And then I would summarize and I would say you you have a you have a valid point of view that some people don't want to risk having these unknown side effect that may or may not happen in five years, and so that's on one hand. On the other hand, this is what we do know. And so, how do you, given that you value your health, how are you taking that in? Like, given that you. Uh, that you want to focus on your kids, how are you taking that in? It's the yeah. same thing over and over. You want to stay safe. You want to stay safe. The vaccine makes you nervous because you're not sure if you will remain safe by getting the vaccine. But now that I told you that not getting the vaccine could make you less safe because of what we talked about with the virus, what are your th- is that does is that yeah, a reasonable way to put it? Exactly. You're okay. trying to help them sort through their dilemma. Yeah. It's, it, it, so people, we could, in terms of complex decisions, complicated decisions, we could assume that the person standing in front of you is ambivalent, that they will have mixed feelings. Now, it used to be that there would be a lot in motivational interviewing that a lot of effort would have been taken to evoke both sides of the ambivalence. And what has been found is that if you spend too much time evoking the sustained talk, meaning I don't want to, I shouldn't, I won't, all that, it kind of people dig in their heels. Yeah. If you devote more time evoking the change talk, there'll be more flexibility. And so I and where you need to establish a relationship with someone, you do need to acknowledge their point of view. And so that's acknowledging the sustained talk. I don't want to be a guinea pig. But we then spent a lot of time talking about the other side of your ambivalence, not my ambivalence. This is the ambivalence that you presented as the hypothetical patient. As the patient. So the CDC recommends that we use specific language when we're talking about the vaccine. And they they say this on their website specifically. Quote, I strongly recommend dot, dot, dot. Right? Yeah, yeah. I haven't heard you say that. That's correct. Yet. You haven't heard me say it yet. Yet. So where (laughs) does that, it does it, because that to me sounds more paternal. It sounds more authoritarian. It sounds like we've made the decision and taking it away from the patient by, I strongly recommend that you get this. Yeah, Whereas, yeah. you know, we started the conversation with, what are your thoughts? Yeah, 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 exactly. So, so does that language, I strongly recommend, play a role or or not? Because you said yeah. yet, which makes me think that it does it can. play a role. Where, where do we weave that in? Yeah, so uh, thank you. 
uh, it's a great question. And and sorry, just to include this all in the same thought, they also state that we should assume they are getting vaccinated when we bring it up, which is not. That seems in contrast yeah. to what, what you said. Yeah. Um, so, you know, these two things that, that they're recommending, are we are we going to be agreeing with them by the end of this conversation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, uh, these are terrific. I could just give it my best shot and answer both questions. Mm -hmm. Let's see. Question number one, I would not start a discussion saying, well, we have the COVID vaccine. And so I want to talk to you about setting up an appointment. That doesn't make any sense based on everything we just said, because the patient's going to react in, in one of several ways. And we didn't articulate this fully when we talked about psychological reactants. You'll see one of several reactions. Uh, one patient may not say anything and nod and not show up for the COVID vaccine appointment. So they'll just nod. A second patient may start to push back. Whoa, 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 whoa wait a second. I'm not getting a vaccine. A third patient may just, <laughs> they just may withdraw and think I'm not coming back to this doctor again, right? And then, then a, a fourth patient, well, you know, may agree with you, but on, you know, less likely than the others. So there are the common reactions to the uh, parental approach. And so it doesn't make sense to start off a discussion like that. However, let's say we have this whole long discussion and I'm educating you about the messenger RNA and how it works and bada bing, bada boom, all of that. We get to the end and you say, well, I'm still not really hot about getting this vaccine. You may say, may I give you my recommendation and what I've done myself? So you could ask permission to give a recommendation. And when you get permission to give a recommendation, the person is exercising their autonomy by allowing you to give your recommendation. If the person says, no, I really don't want to hear your recommendation, what is the <laughs> likelihood that if you give your recommendation, they're going to say, well, now that you mention it, I will get <laughs> vaccinated. And so we're being practical uh, in, uh, <laughs> in how motivational interviewing evolved to begin with. Like one could say, I strongly recommend, but under what circumstances? So when uh, so, I, <laughs> and I'll actually read you an email a patient sent to me just today. She was to use this vernacular, contemplative, and terrified about getting the COVID vaccine. I we had a motivational interviewing discussion, and I, I said, "Well, may I share my point of view about it? May I share my recommendation?" She said, "Sure." I said, um, "I." If, if there's a vaccine available, I would jump on it. I, I don't speak like I would strongly recommend it, like strong, I'm gonna buy, pump my biceps, I'll be right back, I'm gonna do some push-ups. I, I, I speak in a language that my patient, look, I would jump on it. And I speak it from my heart, right? I would jump on it. And may I share why? And I would try to integrate it into their medical history and their life circumstances. And they may say, well, why? And I might say, you know, uh, you, you, you are taking care of your mom and uh, you're putting yourself at risk to get COVID and get her sick. I would try to personalize the recommendation. Or, you know, you've had uh, kidney disease for a while, you're on dialysis and you'd be at greater risk. 
I'm just sharing with you my thoughts as your doctor who cares about you when we are thinking about the dilemma you're in. And I would go back to the dilemma on one hand, you don't want a bad thing to happen with the vaccine. On the other hand, you really want to take good care of your health. So I'd, I'd frame it that way. Would I assume everyone's going to get vaccinated? No, because not everybody is going to get vaccinated. You know, let's get real. And let's say we're not a physician that's offering the vaccine, right? We're still in this place where not that many people have access to it, not that many people qualify for it, and physicians aren't. It's not like it's at a doctor's office right now. So how do we wrap up the conversation with an action, right? Because this is this is where we try to take it. We end it, you, you said, end it on the positive, right? Like, you're not going to end it with reasons they wouldn't get the vaccine. You're going to end it with reasons they should get the vaccine. And then you want to, and correct me if I'm wrong, you want to end it with an action step, with, with something that they're going to do. So if it's not their turn to get the vaccine, how do you, What's the action? What can we yeah, yeah, yeah. what can we have them do? Yeah, you bet. Thank you. Well, I would say two two things to, connected to that question. Thing number one would be let's say they're not ready to get the vaccine, even if it was available. I would say, well, may I share with you a way if you uh, become ready to get a vaccine, how you could check and how you could get one. Like here's a resource for you to see who offers the vaccine and when you would become available. When it right, would become so like available. the New York State Department of Health guide, you know, website yeah, for exactly. who qualifies. You know, exactly. check this regularly and this is where you'll see where you can get and when you qualify. Yeah, exactly. Okay. So if they're not ready, I'm giving that, that resource. And I would also say, would it be okay the next time you see me, you know, and I might schedule like, well, I'd really like to see this person in a month and see if I could continue to talk with them about greater acceptance of, you know, since we met last, have you given this any thought um, and see if they were open to seeing me again in a month? Would you would be okay if you came back and we talked about it again in a month? Um, and some people would say, no, not really. Some people would say yes, but at least you're, you know, you're keeping your foot in the door. And then for the people that already, yeah, I'd get, I'd give that New York State uh, website. I give them a resource. Uh, I might explain, uh, you know, the the different levels of groups one through four, and where they might likely fit in. And uh, and if there is any, now I would imagine people from all over the country, and maybe even other countries listening to this podcast. So whatever resource is available in your locality. I would certainly provide to, to your patient. Yes, we happen to live about 20 minutes from each other. So they, <laughs> they might not all uh, have the Nassau County Department of Health website as the, as the place for them to go to. Yes, there are, there are international listeners to, to this podcast. So yeah. to the international listeners and the local listeners, any parting tips for mo either motivational interviewing in general or motivational interviewing specifically for vaccine acceptance? For motivational interviewing in general, I would suggest that you read Miller and Rolnick's book called Motivational Interviewing, if you want to learn more about it. And, uh, and or you could go on the MINT website. Let me uh, get the URL for you. 
uh, maybe mint.org, but let's see. Uh, no, it's not that. It'll take you to some spam thingamajig. So <laughs> don't do that. Don't do mint.org. Uh, mint stands for Motivational Interviewing Network of Trainers. So um, now uh, Mint Budget Tracker and Planner, Motivational Interviewing. Uh, I think it's motivationalinterviewing.org. Oh, it's, there you yes. go. That makes motivationalinterviewing.org. sense. Motivationalinterviewing.org. And so you could go on that. And they'll have some resources where you could learn more about uh, motivational interviewing. Uh, or you can uh, Google motivational interviewing. You'll see a lot of videos. Uh, uh, Steve Rolnick and Bill Miller have some really good videos, uh, YouTube videos, where you could see them um, uh, demonstrate the skills of motivational interviewing. Fantastic. Dr. Joseph Wiener, thank you so much for taking all this time to teach us about motivational interviewing, motivational interviewing for vaccine acceptance. And we could go on for hours like this. I could listen to this. I, I could have these conversations with you for hours because this is really at the heart of, you know, the, the premise of the podcast is everything we should have been learning while we were memorizing Krebs cycle because this was not taught when I was in medical school. But yeah. this is, you are, you are now teaching this. In, yeah. Is it in re to residents or to medical students that you're teaching this? Uh, to me to medical students. So it's being yeah. taught in medical. So that's, you know, it's it's really it's really fantastic that that's going to be it's going to improve the dialogue of all of the uh, subsequent conversation of all the subsequent practitioners that come out with the the knowledge that this is out there. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I didn't learn it in medical school either, so we all learn as we go along. And it's uh, super gratifying to come on here. I really am honored by the opportunity, Brad. Well, thank you very much. Thanks again. Yeah, thanks a bunch. Have a great evening, everyone. Such a great show with Dr. Weiner. Before we end, don't forget to reach out to MR Insurance Consultants, where their goal is to assist physicians in obtaining the most comprehensive coverage available to fit our unique situations. Reach out for both excellent and quality service at drpodcastnetwork.com slash mrinsurance. That was Dr. Bradley Block at the Physician's Guide to Doctoring. He can be found at physiciansguidetodoctoring.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have a question for a previous guest or have an idea for a future episode, send a comment on the webpage. Also, please be sure to leave a five-star review on your preferred podcast platform. We'll see you next time on the Physician's Guide to Doctoring.